0: to the Riot Woman podcast which features creative conversations with artists, academics, and activists who identified with or were influenced by the punk and riot girl subcultures. I'm your host, Eleanor Callett Whitney, a feminist writer and marketer based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of the forthcoming book also called Riot Woman, a collection of memoir-infused essays about how riot girl has shaped my life. On this show, I'll be talking with a diverse range of guests and invite them to reflect on how punk, feminism, and the do it yourself spirit has impacted their adult lives and the work they make. In this episode, I catch up with Katie Otto, a drummer, writer, activist, and parent who hails from the Washington, D.C. area and currently lives in Philadelphia. She has played in bands such as Del Cielo, Trophy Wife, and Bald Rapunzel, and currently plays in the band Rainbow Crimes. She has also run the independent record label Exotic Fever for 20 years. Katie currently works as Director of Communications for the Juvenile Law Center in Philadelphia and has worked at a number of organizations dedicated to social justice issues, including reproductive health and rights, sexual violence prevention, intimate partner violence, homelessness, and veterans issues. During our conversation, we discuss how Katie fell in love with drums at a whole concert, being a girl drummer who, quote, «hits hard», the administrative work of creativity, DIY touring, punk and sobriety, taking a both and approach to political liberation and reform, and punk, feminism, and the act of parenting, with a little bit of bonus parenting advice by way of Ian Mackay. Enjoy! <laughs> basement studio of Katie Otto's house. Um, and I'm very excited. Katie is also someone I've known for half my life at this point, And we'll talk a little bit more about how we met later. But to start, Katie, I was wondering if uh, you just want to introduce yourself and tell
1: everyone who you are and what you do. Sure. So, my name is Katie Otto. I live in Philadelphia, but I grew up in the Washington D.C. metropolitan area. And I've been playing drums since I was 17 and playing in bands since I was about 17 and a half. It took me a few months to pull my first band together after I started playing. And I also have uh been running an independent record label called Exotic Fever that I started when I was 21. So next year will be the label's 20th anniversary. Um, and I live in Philadelphia. I have a toddler, I, well, he's three and a half now, so I don't know if he's still a toddler. He toddles occasionally when he's walking on ice or something, but I guess he's technically a uh, tot. <laughs> and i um, a husband and I work at a nonprofit that's focused on juvenile justice and child welfare reform.
0: Awesome. And yes, if you hear some thuds on the mic, that is your delightful not toddler child upstairs playing. So uh, he might, you know, have some words to say, which is totally cool. Um, <laughs> so we'll talk more later about um, being a punk and being a parent. But um I guess just to start, you grew up around DC and I'm just curious how you discovered punk and what punk meant to you then. Because I think we talk about punk, but I think it's really important to talk about what kind of punk because everyone has a very different experience with that.
1: Yeah, so um, I had I started playing drums after I went to Lollapalooza uh, in 1995 and I saw uh, Hole, Courtney Loves Band Hole. And I saw Patty Chamel playing drums, and it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I'd never seen a woman do something so powerful and beautiful. And I came home and I told my parents I wanted to play drums. And they said, well, I wonder if you'll quit this the way you quit piano. And I said, I will never quit. And uh, so I started taking lessons um, and started with sort of like, you know, that time there was the explosion of grunge. So... Uh, Via bands like Hole and Sleater Kinney, I kind of heard about and uh, got into other bands. Um, uh, I started ordering records from labels like Chainsaw and Kill Rockstars. So for me, the entry point to punk was always sort of a feminist infused punk. But then also growing up in DC around this time, um, a friend of a friend said, Hey, this band Fugazi is playing a free concert on the mall. And I didn't know anything about them, so I just went along with my friends. That was also amazing. Um, uh, and they were playing a free outdoor concert um, uh, and just thousands and thousands of people there. Um, and then at that show, I got a flyer for another show. So the the punk that I first got introduced to was very much uh, sort of like Riot girl and feminist punk and then also DC punk by way of Fugazi.
0: Amazing. And that... Punk always had a very political bent. So, did you consider yourself a feminist or like a political person before you discovered it? How did that music help shape your political consciousness?
1: I had our band Bald Rapunzel. We eventually also decided to start putting out releases, and that's kind of how our record label was born. And she talked us through this: is what you do to put out a seven-inch, and this woman who was, you know, at the height of her notoriety as a musician would take sometimes an hour of her time to explain things to us and so someone who was so in my mind so cool and such a leader and so amazing took us seriously but then there were experiences of people not taking uh, me or us seriously and I always because Bonnie was my first bandmate, I think of it as an us thing I remember we played a show in College Park which is um like a neighboring it's where the University of Maryland is where I went to college but um it was sort of like in that area and the there were some young women there who said um i think you guys are just doing this band so that you can hang around our boyfriends their boyfriends were in one of the bands quite honestly we didn't even know which band so that was really depressing because clearly i think they thought that we that this wasn't a very serious endeavor, and somehow their boyfriends who were our age doing a band was a serious endeavor. Um, so and that hurt too because it was from other teenage girls. Yeah. So uh, so I th- I would say a mix. Yeah. I definitely didn't realize um, that it was somewhat unusual to be a young woman and a drummer until I went out of D.C. Because in D.C. it felt like there were lots of bands with people of all genders. Um, and then sometimes when we would tour pe- and some of our first tours and people would say, wow, I've never seen a girl drummer who could hit hard. And I would, I, I grew to the point where I like would just write a list out of here are about 20 people that are a good starting place for you. <laughs> uh, Cause I think, I mean, I, and when I think about where that happened, it was, um, you know, sometimes we toured a lot in the South and um, we toured a lot in the Midwest and Sometimes we toured in cities that were smaller, and I, I tried not to be mean about it, but also there's a whole world out there to tell folks about, so. Yeah.
0: yeah, and actually it was on one of those tours that I met you. You came up to Portland, Maine, where I was a, a junior, or a senior in high school. I can't quite remember now, but I was really impressed because to me, I really felt like you were this more grown-up feminist, even though there's really only a few years difference between us, and thought it was really impressive. You'd taken your band on tour, and there was very, very few bands with women in them, especially women who played instruments in Portland, Maine, Um, and unfortunately that may still be the case. It is a very small city, um, and you had been playing these house shows, so I was curious, you know. You spoke a bit about what it was like to be a young woman out on tour, but did you also find a kind of sense of camaraderie with other women as you toured around?
1: Yeah, so our first band that went on tour, Bald Rapunzel, Bonnie and I started it when we were 17 and 18, and we went on a tour using, uh, I think, I don't even know if this still exists as a resource, book your own fucking life, which, I mean, I didn't get it on the internet. I had a zine version of it. And I just called people and I'd email people and we were often very interested. I, you know, I'd dub tapes and I'd send them to people and I'd like handwrite letters. Please let us come play in your town. Um, And I do think that other young women responded to us more. But then a couple of times we would hear about other bands in other cities and I'd try to reach out and say, hey, do you want to come here? And, uh, we could trade shows or something like that it it was very organic the way that it happened um and then there was also kind of like this really neat activity going on in Durham North Carolina a lot of like women in bands a lot of queer folks in bands um and so
0: and this is around like 99-2000 just to contextualize that and was that with like the Mr. Lady record scene very much like that so (laughs) bands like
1: Des like Arc. the Third Sex and Des Arc. I I'm when I was 19, I was first introduced to uh MA from Des Arc. And uh, her old band Rubeo um came and played. Uh love that band so much. And we also kind of knew about things that were going on in New York. And my friend Gina Young was someone who had been from DC and went to New York. She was making music. I will say that uh, you know, this this network of i think of it kind of as like a, also the chainsaw records community there was a message board where people would tell each other about their bands and trade shows and there was a lot of dubbing of tapes and sending them in the mail which feels so archaic now in the world of bandcamp and i, I mean the idea that you would just like make tapes and but there was something cool about uh making a tape and writing a letter and then getting on the phone and talking to someone on that first tour we went on um, it was about a like a 12-day tour I think. It was also kind of before cell phones so I was like having to write down notes of call this person after seven o'clock central time because that's when they get off of work and just a very different way of touring than I think exists now.
0: Yeah and it's interesting because you have to be so organized and my band went on tour in 2000 after I graduated high school and the show we had in the suburbs of D.C. was one of the best shows we had all tour, and you helped set that up, and so I'm really grateful. But, yeah, it was like AAA maps, or maybe I printed out maps from MapQuest, and I had a cell phone, but it didn't have voicemail, <laughs> Yes yeah, that yeah. was extra <laughs>
1: Or- I had a mobile phone that was one of those things that you had to stick into the car jack. Amazing. Uh, like in the jack. Mm-hmm. Not, the, not the car jack. what the little... Cigarette yes, lighter. Yes, the yeah. cigarette lighter. So not exactly a very sophisticated... And we had binders we made. And I remember I made one for each of my three other bandmates. Like, tour... Uh, I don't even remember what year it was, but like, tour 98 or something. Tour 99. Yeah. And we definitely got lost quite a few times.
0: It is funny because talking about this, I don't know if people really talk about like the administration of act they I think people there is some awareness around the administration of like activism and organizing and social change but I have not heard a lot of talk about the administration around like DIY creativity or community I know from my experience working as an arts administrator in a more professionalized nonprofit capacity like trying to help artists navigate that administration but it is interesting that you really took that on and maybe that's a sort of like overachieving type a personality (laughs) thing because I remember I had my car key copied for all my bandmates I did that no one would get locked out (laughs) yes I did that too (laughs) someone lost a key it wouldn't be a big deal and trying to like it was very like emotional labor but then because I was in a band with guys and they were really great but it I kind of felt like I was like the nagging mom and, and that, but I had also set up the whole tour. So in a way, of course I had ownership and, Anyway, I just think it's interesting that you did all that because I
1: really relate to that. Yeah. So I I remember, too, the strong memory of the first tour we went on. And we had my minivan, this, like, teal minivan. And the first out-of-town show we played was actually in Philly. And I don't think I'd ever been to Philly before. And it was at a venue called The Fire, which is still there. And then we had a long drive because it was our first tour. So we had booked some very long drives that I, I think we actually drove all the way to Bloomington, Indiana, from Philly, which is kind of bananas um and on the way there we had our bags um like uh, bungeed to the top of the car and one of the bungees snapped and our bags flew out on the highway at like two or three in the morning and i remember this just weird situation Uh, i had two guys and we had two guys in our band, drew and mike and um the the bags uh, bonnie's in particular had gotten hit by a truck so there she had jeans that had a tire track over them so we were out on the highway and we got in trouble with the police because we were picking up our clothes and kind of running across the highway and then there was a kind of demoralizing experience of the police picking up our clothes including underwear with like some sort of a stick and putting them all in the bag as they because they said you should stay on the side of the road we'll get your clothes for you and um, yeah so it was kind of a trial by fire, <laughs> and uh we definitely some of the clothes were ruined, so we had a very limited wardrobe choice. but I remember we were really excited about playing the Fireside Bowl in Chicago on that trip, yeah. and it, we were just thrilled that it had happened and i and I remember like a picture of that show and poor Bonnie's Jeans. I remember the tire track, wow. but I feel like it was kind of a road warrior situation, too. But yes, quite a bit of administrative work. Then, of course, there was also the issue of, um, like, where do you sleep at night? And one of the things that uh, I've had different experiences touring and traveling in co-ed bands versus with all women. I have felt safer in the situations with co-ed bands, quite honestly. Um, But we had a thing where sometimes if it felt like there was a sketchy vibe going on, we would pretend to be two couples because mm, um, yeah. the other thing was that we were so young on that first tour that some places wouldn't uh, we couldn't get hotel rooms we were told no because uh, we were like 19 and 20 years old and I, I don't know if laws have changed now but I remember being exhausted and driving around like oh you guys are too young to rent a hotel room and so sometimes wow. we didn't really we weren't too picky with where we would sleep right
0: <laughs> wow yes I mean I think some things have changed and Clearly, probably some things haven't. So you've been in a lot of bands since then, um, Del Cielo, uh, Trophy Wife, among others. And what's kept you playing music besides telling your parents, like, <laughs> I'm not going to quit? <laughs> uh,
1: well, when too much time goes by without playing, I, I can really feel like a drop in my happiness. And for me, it's uh, sort of a, I think, a mental health um Issue two, to not play makes me depressed, and um, it's the it's it's one of the most buoying um, uh, things that I do for myself. Um, it also helps me feel really connected to other people. So uh, right now, the the two bands that I had been doing in Philadelphia, Callow Hill and Trophy Wife, are, are currently inactive. And I've been playing with um, two friends, Alex and Leah, we have a new band called Rainbow Crimes, and it's bass, uh, keyboards, and drums, and so I've really been enjoying it, but I guess I, I just can't really go without having something. Yeah. I start to get too down.
0: And for folks who have never seen you play drums, you really should go and see any of Katie's bands. She's just a really joyful, like, ebulent player, uh, and I think the most recent time I saw you was in Trophy Wife in Asbury Park, and it's just interesting you brought up Hole and Patty Schmel because
1: she was there. Ugh, it was a dream, and we we played right before her, and I actually for the that was the first time in my life I got to meet her, and you know I. I don't, I don't feel like I get that starstruck, but I was like shaking in my boots with, with nervous. And I said, I think I really have to go say something. I don't think I should let this moment go by. You know, she's also inspiring to me on a host of levels. I read recently her memoir hit so hard, um, about like overcoming addiction. And, um, there was, you know, I'm at the end of this month, um, I'll be 11 years sober from alcohol. So so much of her talking about that meant a lot to me on a number of levels in that book, um, and she's also still an awesome player. And I thought it was so neat because the band that she's in now was basically like, I, if I think I know the story right, two young women in Los Angeles who had a band reached out and asked her to be their drummer, and she was said yes. That's incredible. And, and so just, I mean, what what a cool human being. Yeah,
0: so. I would like to read that memoir as well. Congratulations on your sobriety. That's Thanks. really awesome. Did you feel coming from this punk community, did that support your sobriety or did it make it more challenging?
1: Well, I think in some ways more challenging because I never really could relate to sort of straight edge uh, dogma. The, I grew up in Bowie, Maryland, which is a suburb of D.C. And there's kind of a hardcore scene that had a really strong straight edge component to it. And a lot of the guys that I knew that were part of it were kind of horrible some of them were kind of abusive to their girlfriends I shouldn't say kind of were abusive to their girlfriends so I never felt any connection at all to straight edge in fact I sort of like felt a rebellion against it and then playing music for so long uh being kind of a type a and anxious person I I was never physically addicted to alcohol but it was a social crutch for me and you're in these situations where that's the one thing that you have plenty of. And then you also have plenty of time. You're sitting around waiting for the show to start or in bars a lot, seeing friends and it, there was just alcohol everywhere. So it became an unhealthy part of my life for a while. And I sort of, I had the good fortune. It was when I was in Del Cielo and my bandmate Bashla kind of pulled me aside and said, I, this is hard to see because you're a, a wonderful and, beautiful person and I think that you're hurting yourself and so that really resonated with me and so I stopped drinking but I even remember going and I know that there are AA meetings that are good but I went to an AA meeting in DC early on that was predominantly men and that alienated me too because there was a guy in his mid-50s that was complaining that his alcoholism made him feel like he didn't deserve his 21 year old girlfriend and I left the meeting and said, "This is kind of why I drink." That meeting, it and and all the guys around, were like you, totally deserve her, man. And all I could think was, "I hope she breaks up with you." Like this is just so so weird as a conversation. This this isn't healing to me at all. This is actually super alienating and kind of creepy. But then I found this amazing book called "Drinking a Love Story" by a woman Carolyn Knapp, who uh, also wrote a book "Appetites." Appetites is kind of around this idea. That women, when we express appetite for anything, be it ambition, sex, food, uh, that 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 is wrong. That an appetite in women or people socialize female is wrong. And I had loved that book and it had sort of blown my mind. And then Drinking a Love Story was more of her personal memoir. And she talks about the ways in which people kind of gave her a pass Mm -hmm. to be an alcoholic because she was a high-functioning type a woman who got things done and it made me think of this time when i was drunk at a show and somebody said to me oh well you know katie you you do everything for everyone so nobody's gonna mind if you're completely wasted here and in a way it was kind of sad to me because i thought oh my high functioning is making it so nobody's saying hey this is a little scary yeah um so yeah but i'm happy to you know and and i'm the other thing about i think being in the punk community is that you know lots of friends. I think there is a tendency for creative people to sometimes turn to substances, to self-medicate. We live in a world where people have bad access to health insurance and sometimes might have gone another route for some sort of self-medication. And so I've also lost many friends over the years to drug addiction or alcohol addiction. So yeah, I don't feel like the Culture around substance use—it's too extreme. It's like straight edge adherence didn't really speak to me. It felt actually sort of sexist in a lot of ways, and also um, there weren't a lot of narratives around recovery that I could relate to. So I kind of looked for that outside with with this amazing book that meant so much to me.
0: I'm really excited to hunt down and check out that book. And thank you so much for sharing that part of your story and. I really relate to that, too, because I reluctantly identified as straight-edge until up to age 23 or so, um, because I felt uncomfortable around alcohol and drinking and drug use, but I didn't have any other language for it, even though, yeah, being in the Northeast, like from Boston or New York hardcore, was very male straight-edge, and I didn't relate at all, but I didn't have any other way to tell people like hey I'm just not interested so I yeah. think it took until I was more grounded in myself to feel okay having I guess what you could say a relationship to drinking where I felt like I could be in control and yeah. it was really interesting because people would tease me and my bandmate in our like pop band we kind of called ourselves a straight edge like indie pop band and people were like, what's that about? You yeah, know? Because we were trying to say, like... It you doesn't have, have to, to sound
1: a certain way. <laughs> yeah, and
0: you don't have to be an asshole. Yeah. To... And you don't have to impose your choices on other people, but, like, this is what's yeah. right for us. And I feel now I'm seeing there's more room in the culture in general, I think, for that, especially as people get older and realize some folks see the damage it's done to their lives or their friends' and family's lives. Unfortunately, it's taken that, but... I'm hoping yeah we can have a more moderate approach (laughs) yeah
1: and i mean that totally makes sense to me and so many so few social spaces were constructed that way so i did often go to straight-edge shows to see hardcore bands and i i liked being in those spaces absent some of what i felt was the male domination and then i guess the other thing about it was it was so stringent that and evangelizing that i thought where's the space here for someone who's in the process of recovery and who might be falling on and off the wagon um to to be seen as anything other than a failure or it just didn't seem to be the kind of fertile soil to encourage recovery or even harm reduction I mean I don't know that everybody who I love who suffers from addiction is ever going to be fully sober and but there is harm reduction that I still support for those people too so definitely a complex conversation
0: absolutely and I do hope in the sort of discourse we have around self-care now that that those grayer areas around harm reduction around recovery around doing the best you can for lack of a better word uh can help but let's talk about helping other creative people namely your record label I can't believe it's been 20 years I remember when you started it and so in my mind that's like a newer project of yours which is ridiculous. Um, So
1: that makes me happy.
0: (laughs) I mean, you talked a little bit about starting to put out your own work, but what motivated you to start it? And how do you identify artists that you want to work with? Because this is a labor of love, I assume.
1: And actually, some of the first releases we put out weren't us uh the first release we put out was a band halo project that was bonnie and my friends it was kind of a duplication that she did Uh, she really wanted to put it out we called it exotic fever 001 uh now we're at over 60 releases the second thing w- that we put out was a project that Bonnie did with our friend Doug Kalmeyer called Half Light, and that's still something we have online. Uh, and then we put out the Books to Prisons comp, the DC area Books to Prisons comp. And with that, our friend Sarah Clem, who also s- founded the label with us, had helped to put together a zine um, with essays from bands about their favorite a book that changed their lives, and then letters uh, that included envelope art from prisoners, uh, people in prison on the inside, and it was a fundraiser for the DC area books to prisons project. And Sarah had uh, Sarah Clum had helped found that project. So it was basically about getting reading materials to people on the inside. And you know, now as I work in the juvenile justice space, Sarah really got me interested in that work. And she helped to co-found the books to prison chapter we had in DC. I know here in Philly, we have books through bars. Um, I think it remains really important to try to find ways to not allow for the warehousing away of human beings and keeping them out of all of our eyes and sight that's how horrible things happen that are unjust to people in prison and it was just the project was really about building empathy and connection for folks on the inside and the outside uh but but in terms of finding so that was like a host of bands that we knew we were very lucky to get a song from our friends thursday who became very big and it's still the only place that that song exists so actually the comp still does sell a little bit and all of the we we've in total, had five benefit comps, Books to Prisons, Vietnam Veterans Benefits Project, uh, Compassion Over Killing, the District Alliance for Safe Housing, which was a D.C. area domestic violence shelter and services program, and HIPS, which is Helping Individual Prostitutes Survive, another D.C.-based organization. And so the, the label always had this idea of using art as a vehicle for awareness building and social change. And other than that, it was kind of just things that we ran across that we thought were amazing and that didn't have a label already. So the the release after the Books to Prisons project was a band Light like the Fuse and Run, who were from Richmond, who we loved. We put out both vinyl and CD, and then we put out a band 1905 from DC, it was a political punk band. Still probably one of the, I mean, I think it was like, we had it in three pressings. It was one of the best-selling releases. And then it just kind of, like, people that we met, there was really only one band that we kind of met out of thin air, which was this band, Respira. These teenagers from Thousand Oaks, California, had sent Sarah a tape, and we were just blown away by it. It was awesome music. We could not believe that. they. And it was a super thoughtful letter that they'd sent, and Sarah just started corresponding with them, and they won some sort of battle of the bands or something that allowed them to have this really robust recording budget. So we had worked, um, they had given some songs for the benefit comps, and then Sarah put out, uh, well, Exotic Fever via Sarah's uh, ongoing relationship put out their full length, but it was recorded by this guy, Alex Newport. It was just really cool because they'd won this battle of the bands, which I think they were technically even too young to participate in, and so they had a robust recording budget, and so that's really the only one that came out of nowhere. Mostly it was like people we met along the way.
0: And as you are a parent and have jobs and a husband, how do you find time to keep the label
1: going? Is it still a group project or is it mostly you now? So I would say it's a group project um, in the sense that one of um, my musical heroes, Kathy Cashel, who played in the DC band Norman Mayer Group and has released two solo albums on the on the label, uh, is our webmaster. And so she helps me make a beautiful website that remains an effective vehicle for communicating. Sarah and Bonnie aren't involved in the day-to-day, but I feel like they're very present in the history of the label. Sarah is now a public defender in Baltimore County, and Bonnie uh, helps youth who are entering um, the job force uh, in in a kind of work development program in Burlington, and they're both moms too. And they're both awesome, so I just wanted to mention them. But I've also had other friends help me with other aspects. My friend David in Baltimore has helped me with graphic design. So because I don't have a ton of time, the label, you know, there are a lot of things I would probably do if I had more time to devote to it. But I try to think of it now as sort of a curation tool. So this year I only, as of now, have two releases lined up, and that's a band from Philly called Upholstery, which is an amazing collective of sort of like 10 people playing a range of instruments and accordion and it's very theatrical and interesting um and then cool moon which is my friend andrea from del cielo's new band in houston and they're both releasing records well actually we might have a different format than a record for andrea's release but they're both releasing music in may amazing so. I so, but it's it doesn't, the, the thing that's changed the most is that it used to be that I knew the formula of how to put out a record, what zines to send it to, what, and now, first of all, I I don't know as many print zines if they even exist in the same way, and also the fact that people don't buy as much physical product for music has been a bit of a rough moment for me because that's not the way that things work now with digital sales I mean I I do it all I use TuneCore which and also Bandcamp so we're in the digital space but it's a little different to, than what I grew up doing
0: yeah for sure <laughs> and and I think it is changing a lot about how music is discovered and what gets discovered but Two projects in a year still sounds like a lot. So that's really exciting. That's Thank you. very yeah. active.
1: Well, as every time I think, oh, maybe the label has run its course, there'll be some project that comes to me that makes me realize – Oh no it's it still has a role it's a specific role and i in my mind all of the things every single release that's been part of the label makes sense as a family of if you're interested in i can see at least in my mind the thread that connects all these things there've been people who've thought is this a band that is uh, is this a label that's focused on releases by women and girls that it never was strictly that uh we do have a lot of releases that include women and girls and uh, queer folks and people of color, but that's just because those are the people that I have met with and connected to. We also have some bands that are bands made up of straight white men. It's really what speaks to me, and uh, that's that's kind of the voice of the label.
0: That's great. Um, and you've touched on this, I think, in just talking about what your uh, label mates and bandmates are doing now, but I'd love to hear how your involvement in punk or DIY and feminist politics has informed your professional career and where you see that dovetailing and maybe how also doing the nonprofit and advocacy work you've done uh, has evolved
1: your politics as well. Sure. So I went to school for journalism at University of Maryland, and I thought I wanted to be a journalist, but I had so many professors tell me we can always tell what your opinion is, so you might want to consider the field of communications, (laughs) which is fine, Um, and so I didn't know that was a thing, and I learned about what that meant. Um, And so after college, I worked at a number of organizations. My first job out of college was working for a group called the Empower Program, which was um, founded by uh, Rosalind Wiseman, who wrote the book Queen Bees and Wannabes that got adapted to Mean Girls. And I was there for seven years. And I feel like a lot of my professional development was there. And it was around uh, sort of gender-based violence, anti-bullying, thinking about social hierarchies that teenagers have and how those are hurtful and also how the parents can emulate and replicate them. But I worked on things like writing newsletters, writing press releases, writing grants. uh, And it was a way to use... The skill of writing and persuasive writing in particular to shape public thought and to change problems that I saw um, in society. I see a lot of value in, I did some work in development over the years in raising money, but now what I've arrived at in the past, uh, like approaching 10 years has been strictly around communications, because I feel as if one of the greatest ways to make change in our world now is to change hearts and minds and communication seems to me to be the vehicle to do that. And also, uh, one of the organizations in the past few years that's impressed me the most is a neat place in New York called the Dart Center for Trauma and Journalism. And so I I really avidly follow them because they're trying to raise journalists sensibilities when it comes to handling uh, trauma and both subject matter of trauma, but also people they might be interviewing who've experienced trauma and to be thoughtful in how they ask questions, when they stop, what questions they don't ask. So I try to bring a trauma-informed approach to thinking about communications. There's this horrible old adage in the media world, if it bleeds, it leads, which is very true, sadly. Um, But how can we get people interested in talking about some very horrible truths about our world without Really appealing to what is essentially a trauma porn grist mill. Mm-hmm.
0: And how has kind of working on a larger stage, metaphorically, than a DIY space and the punk space, changed how you approach your politics or even your art or your life?
1: Well, I try to. You know, I I remember once having a job interview where the person interviewing me had Googled videos of Trophy Wife and that was kind of... And she told me during the interview and, you know, in that band, I play drums really loud and I scream a lot and, uh, and I was sort of horrified. But then again, I also think that we need to have a world where people can have professional lives and can make art and not be afraid or censoring themselves unduly. It is a hard thing to think about in this day and age because you hear stories of people who get in trouble at their work for a thing that they didn't said on social media. Hopefully it's not just screaming in a band because that compared to the things that people get fired for, that seems fairly innocuous actually. But I've tried to continue to make the art and music. I would like to make and not feel overly uh, self-policed, I guess worrying about um, what ramifications might be. But I, I think one major change for me from some early days is for three years, I worked at Planned Parenthood Southeastern Pennsylvania doing media and government relations. And it made me, I was actually for a time a lobbyist and it, because I was lobbying for bills. And I think that experience in a state legislature really made me more interested in what's happening on a state house committee or it, it, because- When it comes to the issue of abortion access, there are some things that you really do need people to be in office to do. And so while the truest to my heart are sort of a politics of liberation and an anti-oppression politics that would not necessarily include the electoral and governing system that we have in this country. I'm also a realist who understands that to protect and affirm safeguards and rights and dignity that we all have here, we need to be in those chairs. So I think in recent years, I've been way more involved than I was in my youth in sort of canvassing, knocking doors. That wasn't something I did when I was younger. I was more, you know, I was, and I, I hope to still do both. Like when I was in my early 20s, we went to the World Bank um IMF meetings to try to shut him down in DC on April 16th. Very, very much interested in a very radical politics. Uh, I think I would self-define as a horizontalist, feminist horizontalist. Uh, I think the folks that inspire me most politically are the Zapatista movement and a lot of women of color like Angela Davis and Bell Hooks. And And that was a little separate from the sort of electoral space, which I do now spend some time. (laughs) I
0: completely relate to that. I did work on one campaign when I was a teenager where they were trying to restrict abortion access in Maine. Uh, Actually, I worked on a few campaigns because there was also trying to restrict or prevent gay rights legislation. Uh, So doing phone banking mostly, a little easier than knocking doors in a very spread out rural state. But I definitely... Kind of put that work on pause, and I think also because I saw this more, I guess, anarchist or anti-capitalist framework to my thinking. But for me, like many people, after the election in 2016, I really realized how much local politics really matter. I mean, politics on all levels really matter, but I saw that if there was uh, values that I cared about, like immigrant rights abortion access or in the right to choose, there were decisions being made on the local and state level that could really have an impact and do really have an impact on people's lives. So yes, I've also been doing a lot of door knocking and realizing that I didn't think about this before, but how much work democracy actually demands. And I think one of the reasons like I haven't been playing music in the past few years is I've been taking that time to do local activism and that's a very privileged choice I think as well that I have that leisure time but I've been very inspired in my neighborhood which is mixed and a lot of immigrant families That it's like immigrant women who are really carrying forward a lot of the organizing and some of the women in my neighborhood they cannot vote themselves but they're really passionate about the ramifications of these elections so I think it's shown me like who has all this privilege
1: like I better step up yeah I hear you and I think the piece too that is that hopefully we're building power and hopefully the canvassing and door knocking if we have sort of here in my neighborhood, my my dear friend ran for state rep and won her race. But I think that the model she embraced too was not just, we're not just knocking these doors so that she can win. We're knocking these doors so we can get people connected so that we can start to build power. We can start to have conversations and also try to have some conversations outside of our bubble.
0: Absolutely. Uh, but I think
1: it can be a both and, because I, I did experience, I have experienced a pushback at times of you know, this whole system is broken and bankrupt and corrupt. And w- this is not how we will get free. And I don't disagree with any of it. And at the same time, I think of it the same way I think of not judging people for how they survive in an abusive relationship. I, I don't think that we, you and I, or, you know, others who have problems with the system, we are not its architects and we're doing it with the best we can with, with it in place. Absolutely.
0: Um, and yeah, it's I've heard the argument of voting as harm reduction and I think that's for people who are very skeptical I think that's an important uh angle to take I don't necessarily know if I totally agree that I think it's something everyone should do and have access to doing of course we could talk a long time about like (laughs) local and municipal uh issues I think one thing I've seen in New York which is spreading around the country is the participatory budgeting model. So it's very, very administrative. And it's how cities spend their capital budgets, which sounds like a snooze. But when the community can propose projects and vote on them, and you're really looking at local control of local finances for a certain kind of project, it's really exciting. And what's very cool about at least how uh, my council member, Carlos Montaca, in Sunset Park in New York and others have embraced it is it's uh, people as young, I believe, as 11 or 12 can vote and it's so irregardless neat. of citizenship and all that. So it really does build a participatory model for
1: people who are actually like living in communities. Oh, I want to learn more. That's really neat. I I also wanted to share with you that in the little neighborhood where you, where you first visited me in D.C., um... Like, right in that area, Hyattsville is now one of the only places in the country where 16-year-olds can vote in the municipal races. So, I mean, they can't vote. For example, they wouldn't be able – if the ballot includes president and senator, they won't be able to vote in that. But 16-year-olds can vote for the council. And it's really neat. And I, I sort of feel like we're giving people the ability to drive a car. Uh, right. But I, I feel like that's a sensible move. But –
0: absolutely and it builds power and that people will continue hopefully to participate in the democratic process so shifting from the community to the personal we've made reference of your delightful son Uh, so you're a parent and how has punk and your politics impacted how you think about being a parent and then the act of
1: parenting Um, I think in a lot of ways I think weirdly one of the folks I got advice from about parenting when I was pregnant was Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Discord Records because he is a parent now and I admire him on a range of levels and so I had a conversation with him when I was pregnant and I expressed oh, you know I'm worried that I will lose myself there's we have a culture that sort of invisibilizes women once they are a mother because they're sort of in this caretaker role to others and he said but you you don't have to do any of it you can be exactly who you are and be you as a parent because only you will know how to parent your child and everything that is instinctive in you as a human animal for how you should parent your child, you should trust it. And it was a great piece of advice to me. I'm very fortunate to have a partner um, who I think takes equitable parenting seriously, but I have noticed that he, I think, is excellent at equitable parenting, and we are a hetero couple, um, And but the kudos that he gets mm. is s- sort of galling to even him. I remember playing a show after I had David, and, and one of the first questions I got was, so is Mouse babysitting? And I said, no, he's parenting. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think... But even he is sensitive to that. Um, We try to do things like we switch off um, taking one week. I'll take David to daycare and pick him up the next week. Mouse takes David to daycare and picks him up. And we we've also really um, we made a promise to each other that we would carve out space. Um, And actually right after this is part of that space for Mouse. He does a lot of jujitsu. And so I have time. It's kind of like no questions asked. You get two blocks of the week that you just go and do your thing and and you go do the thing that makes you you outside in the world. We also didn't we didn't want to disappear from those activities. I think um, the person that tra- that he trains with for jujitsu was kind of like, I lose so many people once they become parents. But we think it's healthy for David to see two parents that go out and do the things they love in the world. So I play music. Mouse does jujitsu. Sometimes after David goes to sleep, we've been also coming down and trying to play music with each other. It's a little hard when I-, I have two friends who have kids and they have a band together, and that that seems hard to me because you don't have the built-in other person going to watch. <laughs> Uh, the kid so but I also one of the things I'm trying to do is encourage a process of self-discovery for David so we try to I try to also just take him and do things that I would do like go to museums go to libraries we are kind of brutally honest with him I mean I tell him things even when there are sad things that are happening in the world I try to do it at an age-appropriate level but i I don't want to tell him how to think or who to be, but I want to tell him why I think what I do, and then I guess also just on a more basic level, I've had him play drums and stuff so <laughs> uh
0: and you oh and I've been
1: organizing i'm sorry, I just want to add this so i am in the process of organizing my third all age like not only all ages but a very kiddo friendly show, so there's a venue um the rotunda that is has let me do shows in the afternoon with having a strict start time and end time that is clearly communicated to all the participants, a little child-friendly corner with toys, headphones for or ear, earbuds, like earplugs for everyone. Um, and I found that you get a really high attendance. And even people who don't know either of the bands, but when you bill a show, and I've said like kiddo and everyone friendly because also you don't need a kiddo to go to these shows. But that was my way of marrying my punk and parent self. I love
0: that and- it's really inclusive in a way that you don't have to be or have a kid to participate but you feel welcome and not like sidelined if you do bring your kid that's all I think that's an amazing model of inclusivity that's sort of a microcosm of what the world might be able to look like yeah, to be I, more parent
1: or family friendly. I hope, I hope that, so we have also many people close to us that we love who do not plan to be parents and David knows them and understands that and I want a world where to the extent that they want, David can make friendships with other adults that aren't his parents. Cause I think that's a rich thing for children. Um, he has a babysitter that he basically chose th- through, I did some teaching at girls rock Philly and they had a childcare while you taught. And he really adores this, this person, Christina, who he met there. And so he, the two of them have this friendship that they developed. And I think it's awesome. Cause I think kids need more than just their two parents. So I think to me, what's interesting is how do we build a tribe in a, country and world that doesn't really support tribes in that way. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I just finished reading Jessica Valenti's Why I Have Kids oh. book. Uh, it came out, I think, oh, in I didn't 2011 know about that. or 2012. I didn't either. I love
1: her writing, and I don't didn't know about that book. It's
0: <laughs> great, and I think her central argument is absolutely around having a community around uh, kids and also just making it whatever... Women choose to have kids or not have kids. That that's all equally valid and equally supported through our um, political and social policies. So I think it's great that you're finding as much as you can, and it is a challenge because the world really is not set up like that uh, at all.
1: And also to just sort of like disavow the mommy wars kind of do still exist in in some, maybe not the way they used to, but to not shun other women's choices uh in any way around to parent or not to parent to breastfeed or not to breastfeed i just really i've had friends who have when they first have a child felt like i did this wrong and i was judged and we're all just doing our best (laughs) so i think ways to find you know support would be one thing that that a couple of my friends like to do is called we just do sleep sit swaps so try to have some time outside of the house with your partner and not, not feel like you have no one you can call on. Like if you need someone to come down and help try to build a culture and a community, even on your little block where that's possible.
0: I, I think in a way that is uh, very punk and not just punk. I mean, I think that's how communities have been communities for a very long time. And I think especially under capitalism, and this idea of like choice feminism, we're really isolated yeah. from each other. So now it's like you can make a quote-unquote choice to be a parent or not, but within this sort of neoliberal framework, you're very
1: isolated from. Mm-hmm. People a- are moving further away from their parents. And, um, and then what I think I had mentioned to you that when I was sort of on my maternity leave, I wanted to have a sort of a touchstone for this. So I interviewed parents of all genders to ask for their thoughts on how to nurture their own creative lives as parents. And it included an interview with my dear friend, Rashida Phillips, um, who had a child at 14 and is an Afrofuturist writer, organizer, um, public interest lawyer, and this amazing human being, um, and was able to do what I think is phenomenal and what many people sort of gave her the sense that she couldn't do or, you know, th- We have these ideas and this baggage that we carry demonizes young moms, moms of color. um, And I wanted to have a place where people could tell the stories of the things that you can do and be and achieve as a parent, including including a creative life and a creative community. And I mean, I don't think I have all the answers. I just I'm just hungry to figure it out and hear from people.
0: Uh, and I think that's very uh, DIY spirit as well. So it's really exciting that you're carrying on that work. So uh, we've been talking for almost an hour, so I know that, yeah, I want to be uh, cognizant of your parenting time, and I really appreciate uh, David and Mouse hanging up out upstairs or <laughs> definitely playing like trains Yeah, or I do something. hear something now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the work you do as a parent, as a creative Uh, as an advocate and communications person for nonprofits that are working on really serious social issues is pretty emotionally involved so I know self-care is really can be a little eye-rolly right now (laughs) and you did mention like playing music as a way uh, to take care of your mental health but is there anything else you do or how do you kind of Retain or work on retaining that health and balance and
1: sanity. Well, I did recently get a gym membership because I found the local gym has a saltwater pool, uh, and it's like three blocks from here. So that's been kind of neat. I don't know, something about a saltwater pool feels really good. So I like to swim swim laps a lot. Um, this is very dorky, but I've been playing role playing games from my youth. So I got this modulator that lets me play Sierra games like Quest for Glory and King's Quest. And that's pretty dorky. I also have tried very hard, especially post being a parent, to carve out some time to be with my friends and to nurture those relationships. I did find that after I had a child, it was a little easier to sort of make time to spend with folks with kids um like at the playground or things like that but a lot of my friends my close friends aren't parenting and I want to have time to be with them including time to have with them that where David's both with me and not with me so yeah those are kind of the big ones for me uh uh, I think I would love to do a little more traveling that's been a little hard We, we did Mouse and I did get to go on a trip this was like a dream that I'd wanted to do forever but we, for my 40th birthday, we went on a trip to Greece and we went to this uh, little island called Hydra, which doesn't have any um, wheeled vehicles. I mean, we're not, that's not going to be a kind of thing that I can do very often. That, that might be the only time we ever go, but uh, just trying to carve out a little space for adventure and yeah. fun.
0: And we were talking about this at breakfast earlier, my last question about maybe punk rock parenting backfiring a little bit. You. Uh, oh, yeah. To encourage your wonderful child to be thinking for himself, questioning (laughs) authority,
1: what happened? Uh, So I bought a book called A Rule is to Break, and it's kind of like a kid's riff on anarchy. And now, unfortunately, when I try to tell him to do certain things, he looks at me and says, A Rule is to Break. So... Yeah, it is very interesting. And, and Mouse and I often joke, too, what if we wind up with an Alex P. Keaton? Because, you know, that in the show Family Ties, these two lefty parents have this young Republican kid. Um, but I guess, so, I don't know. Is he going to be a rule is to break every rule anarchist flag waiver? Waver, or is he going to be Alex P. Keaton? Who knows?
0: <laughs> well, I think only time will tell. But hopefully, however he ends up, he'll be a very kind and empathetic person, which hopefully doesn't lead to being a Republican. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we've been talking throughout about the impact kind of punk and feminism has had on your life and how you're still connected to that community. But I guess just in closing, like, what would you say has been sort of your biggest takeaway from being a part of the punk and feminist
1: community? Like now is who you are in your forties uh i think it's that just allowing myself and others hopefully um through encouragement and support the ability if you have something inside you that you think you can make or create or share to do it and to not be scared and to know that if you try there might be other people who could help you i think that was the biggest thing that that i i gleaned from that world was you can make things it's you can make things just basically the sentence you can make things you can say things and as basic and simple as those seem that's kind of why I've just kept doing all these things um, that simple sentence so
0: I feel that so now I'm making a
1: podcast yeah so thank I you, love so, it. Much thank you so much a for being part of it thank you so much for inviting me to be part of no, it no
0: it's a pleasure and I will put links to the things that we've talked about in the show notes as they're called and thanks again Katie it's such a pleasure Thanks so much for listening to this edition of Riot Woman. You can follow Katie on Twitter at exfkaty, that's e x f k a t y, and check out her label at exoticfever.com. For more information on me and this podcast, you can visit eleanorcwhitney.com/podcast. And hey, while you're there, I'd love it if you signed up for my mailing list. The song Half Lie by Talene Kelly is our theme music. You can hear more of her work and support her at talinekelly.com. Finally, if you liked this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. It means a lot to me and helps others discover the show. Thanks, and until next time...